I think it's something where it's like, we need to actually learn to work with our minds, but then also within that say, there are other resources that might be of benefit in addition to and correlate with the meditation practice. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I've been into making superfood and super herb smoothies and elixirs for many, many years. And one thing that's always been a bit problematic about it was sourcing the individual ingredients and making sure that they're of the highest quality and then putting them together in one drink that doesn't taste disgusting. It's been a lot of years that I've been working on this and I don't think I've perfected it. So I was extremely ecstatic when I connected with this brand called Earth Echo Foods and a product they make called Cacao Bliss. Because what they've done is taken some of my favorite superfoods and put it in a pre-made powder that I can simply mix or add into any other drink. So in this powder, we of course have raw cacao, that supports your body's natural ability to regulate blood sugar, also keeps you satiated and reduces the number of carbohydrates you absorb. Turmeric, which we know fights inflammation related to physical exercise, improves digestion, provides pain relief, dissolves stubborn fat, and even soothes anxiety and stress. Then black pepper to maximize your results by increasing the bioavailability of the turmeric by up to 2,000%. And we've got MCT powder to help you feel satiated longer with those healthy fats, making it easier for your body to release stubborn fat deposits. Cinnamon to further improve your body's ability to digest glucose and reduce your desire for sugary sweets, which I have a lot of. And we've got monk fruit, which satisfies your sweet tooth as well as sugar with zero calories and no ill effect on your blood sugar. Coconut nectar that acts as a prebiotic and feeds the healthy gut bacteria in your lower intestine. Then we've got lacuma, which adds a delicious caramel-like flavor and also adds a wound healing property to the drink. Then they've included some mesquite, a sweet and nutty superfood that doesn't cause blood sugar spikes and helps to boost your immune system. And finally, last but not least, some Himalayan salt, which adds to the flavor profile and also contains over 84 minerals and trace elements while helping to balance your pH levels. So this drink is incredible. It's really good for you. It tastes delicious. It's like candy without the candy. If you're ready to check it out, which I hope you are, here's what you do. Go to earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. That's E-A-R-T-H-E-C-H-O-F-O-O-D-S. earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. The code there for your cacao bliss is luke15, and that saves you 15% off. So you're looking for Cacao Bliss at earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. If you're someone that struggles with quality of sleep or duration of sleep, your problem might just be light leaking in and informing your brain that it's time to wake up, especially that pesky blue light that might sneak through the windows from streetlights outside or any devices you have plugged in in the room. Fact is, your body needs complete darkness if you want to get great sleep. Now, it's not always possible to adjust the room you're in so that it's completely blacked out. So this company called blueblocks.com has solved that problem by creating an incredible sleep mask called the Remedy Sleep Mask. 
Now, unlike other sleep masks on the market or one you might just pick up randomly on Amazon, this thing is 100% blackout. So it's like sleeping in pitch black darkness, which is what you want. It's also really soft on your face, very comfortable. You can also fully open your eyes while wearing the mask. So this is great people with long eyelashes and also applies zero pressure to the eyes, which I find to be really annoying. I don't want my eyes being smashed when I'm trying to sleep. It's made with super breathable fabric so you don't wake up with a hot and sweaty face. It's also got an adjustable strap, which is really cool, so you can fit it to whatever size your skull happens to be. It also has adjustable eye cups, so you can position them on your face for the perfect fit. Another thing that's really cool is it works for all sleeping styles. So if you sleep on your back, belly, or even on your side, it's flat on the side so it doesn't smash your face and ruin your sleep, which again is the whole point of this thing. So if you're looking for better sleep, if you're waking up frequently, if you're shifting around at night because some light is sneaking through, this can solve that problem. And not only is it good for sleep, I happen to like it a lot for taking a nap during the day or even for meditation, which of course has many benefits, one of which being helping you sleep the following night. So the Remedy Sleep Mask from Blue Blocks is awesome. I highly recommend you check it out. Here's how you do so. Go to blueblocks.com slash lifestylist and use the code lifestylist to save 15%. That's B-L-U. B-L-O-X, blueblocks.com slash lifestylist. Lifestylist is also the code for 15% off. Yo, we are living in a crazy, crazy world, guys. And if you want to learn how to use mindfulness and meditation to ease the stress of being human in that crazy world we find ourselves in today, this is the episode for you. And if you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, make sure to text it to a couple of your stressed out friends. Our very special guest today is Lodro Rensler. He's the author of six meditation books and the co-founder of Mindful Meditation Studios in New York City. Here's a taste of the wisdom nuggets on which you're about to feast. My starstruck moment of meeting Sharon Salzberg at Lodro's Meditation Studio, how he's pivoted his brand in lockdown mode, what led him to spirituality as a kid of two meditating parents, and the auspicious nature of this incarnation why he never rebelled against meditation, what attracts people to different meditation styles and spiritual teachings, the biggest life challenges that his personal practice has helped him to overcome, defining stress versus anxiety, how meditation assists with anxiety, whether or not unresolved trauma gets in the way of a meditation practice, and Lodro's advice for the people who say, I've tried to meditate, but I just can't do it. My mind won't shut up. Now, of course, this conversation meanders in and out of many more topics and insights based on Lodro's extensive training as both a meditator and teacher of many other meditators. It's my joy and pleasure to share this conversation with you. May it uplift and bless you as you listen. Be in joy and remember that you are but a soul having a human experience. Welcome to the show, man. Good to see you. Thanks for having me. So many years ago, I was in New York City and I was, uh, as I'm prone to do when I travel anywhere, was looking for the local hotspots in terms of uh, consciousness folks and meditation centers, uh, breathwork centers, all of this kind of stuff. And I stumbled into your um, now uh, deceased business, Mindful. And it was it was a really exciting time for me in New York because the years I had gone there prior working in the fashion industry, there was very little of that. And I had to work really hard to find, um, you know, little yoga studios and things like that that would sort of be tucked away. And uh, I was thrilled to find that that these practices and businesses built around them had become somewhat mainstream. And that's when I first found your books and your work. And 
um, interviewed your co-founder at that time and was unable to track you down because it's New York City. So it's really great to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to be here with you as well. I mean, it's true. So a lot can happen in a number of years, but um, you know, particularly this year, obviously there are a lot of people who have experienced any number of whirlwinds. And I know that there's a lot of businesses that have risen and fallen and, you know, people on top of each other and all sorts of things. So it's a good time, I imagine, for us to sit down and talk about meditation and its benefits. Absolutely, man. I think now, perhaps more than ever. Uh, so you're a very prolific writer. And I always respect that because I'm in the process of writing a book. And uh, it is not as easy as it looks when you see people just churning out books. So you've got six books, the latest, of course, being Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. And uh, you know what a timely book it is. The first thing I want to ask you is, how the hell do you find time and bandwidth in your life in New York City to write books? Yeah, it's a great question. So at this point, I actually, in 2019, my wife and I moved upstate. So not that that somehow environmental shift really makes a big difference. But for me, it does, there's sort of a continuation of a theme for me, which is that there, I had to have some sense of good boundaries. And I think arising out of the meditation practice itself, there's something very clear of like discernment arises. We start to discern what we want to cultivate more of in our life, what we might want to cut out. And for me, it just means that there are certain things that I've cut out in terms of hours spent binge watching television or, you know, even just the way that I sort of, my wife is a, um, like a lounger in the morning. I've, I've adapted to some degree so I can spend time with her in the morning. But like, for me, it's sort of like at some point I need to put down the coffee and I need to go practice and I need to exercise and I need to write. And, um, from, it's just a development thing where it's, I have a sense of, um, what I want to cultivate in my life. And then ultimately what I need to cut out a little bit. And that's just naturally been a part of the meditation practice for me. And um, it's a really, it's, it's sort of become a natural evolution, I'll say. And in terms of making the pivot with your business mindful, uh, which as I said, was just such an incredible business. And I think something I got so excited about seeing businesses like that pop up. And I remember going there um, and seeing Sharon Salzberg, um, who I'm, I believe is a friend of yours, speak. And to me, it was like, I don't know, it's almost like when you get to see one of your favorite musical artists in a small bar and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they're playing this place. You know, I'm sitting there with like 20 people with Sharon Salzberg, who to me is just such an icon and, you know, in the space of mindfulness and meditation. And, you know, the place was always full of people and it was packed and there were all sorts of different classes and things like that. How have you pivoted, you know, after that business closed and, and, and what was, um, I guess, I don't want to call it the demise, but maybe a shift would be a way to frame that. What was the shift like? And at what point did you guys decide to close? And, you know, how are you kind of making your way in the world of not having a brick and mortar business like that? Yeah. I mean, it's not like I have any sense of good foresight, but I exited Mindful in 2019 before there was a pandemic. Ah, and that's okay. when we moved upstate, we, I also left uh, the operational side of Mindful. So I'm very, I'm glad I was sort of spared some of the, the heavy decisions that have to be made in the midst of a pandemic in terms of what needs to be kept and what needs to fold and all of that. Um, I mercifully was not, I was spared all of those heavy decisions and I had already moved online, which it, it was sort of bizarre because then everyone joined me, right? All of a sudden, everyone and their mom was offering online meditation and courses and things like that. But for the last 
gosh, I guess it's three years. I've been doing a five-month Buddhist immersion program. And that's a chance for people who they might have dabbled in meditation before. They've done some apps or they took some classes. They're like, where do I want to go with this? And this this program introduces the entirety of the Buddhist path over five months, which is a good chunk of time. And there's also a mindfulness teacher training element as part of that. So for people who want to do both or they've already done the Buddhist immersion, then they can actually concentrate on the practice that stems out of it and they can learn to teach it. And um, that's really taken up a lot of my life. So even before there was a pandemic and even before Mindful was forced to close its doors, I had already started these sort of massive undertakings uh, as part of my move upstate. And it's been uh, really sort of magical because there's currently over 100 people doing the Buddhist immersion and and some of them are doing the mindfulness teacher training, maybe uh, a little bit under a third of that. And they're from everywhere. You know, this is an opportunity to work in great depth with people who live in the UK, who live in Italy, who live in Australia. And, you know, I'd say the closest person in the program is about 15 minute drive from here. So it's it's everyone, you know, it's really sort of amazing um, that this, the flip side of this pandemic is that people have said, oh, I can actually uh, do deep learning online. And for me personally, as someone who's been teaching meditation for 20 years, um, I love the ability to at times engage in just offering meditation as a practice. But the deeply meaningful work for me is to put it in its traditional context and and really teach on that as well. That's awesome. So from what I understand, you were introduced to the Buddhist path and meditation as a kid. How early was that? Yeah, I so my parents had been practicing meditation starting in their 20s. And by the time I came around, I was already, they had been practicing for some time. So there was this moment where they stumbled across me six years old. And I imagine if they weren't meditation practitioners, they probably would have um, been a little freaked out or a little weirded out. And I was just sitting there cross-legged on the floor facing the wall. (laughs) They opened the door, they sort of closed the door, walked away, didn't talk about it. Over dinner that night, my mother asked me, you know, what were you doing? And I said, I was meditating. And she said, what does that mean? And I said, well, I was focusing on the breath. And then when I got distracted, I came back and I focused on the breath. And she goes, yeah, that's basically it. Because I mean, it is a very simple practice, mindfulness practice in particular, where we are learning to be with the body breathing. When we get distracted, we come back. And that's literally retraining, rewiring the brain to become more present. Um, But in this case, you know, that was my... I wouldn't even say introduction to it. It was already introduced because it was just in the environment when I was growing up because my parents were practicing all the time. But then uh, later on, I started doing like weekend retreats and things like that, starting at the age of 11 and then continued on from there. So it's it's been a very long path, but it's it's something that I feel like because it was in the environment itself, I was introduced to at a young age. Was there any point at which you rebelled against family tradition and went off and did drugs and became a punk rocker and like stopped meditating? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I had like a teenage rebellious time. It was a really lame rebellion. I'm, it's so embarrassing. It's like wearing a cross around my neck and not like there wasn't. It, <laughs> my parents were totally encouraging too. It was they, they really thwarted the rebellious part by just simply indulging it and being like, "You're curious about religion? That's great. Like, go to temple, go to a church, like, go explore these things." And um, <laughs> yeah, I. It was short-lived. I mean, there there wasn't much to rebel against. It's not a very dogmatic tradition. You know, there's it's a sense of 
Do you want to work with your mind? And here are tools to work with your mind. Do you want to try and become more wakeful, more open-hearted? Okay, yeah, there's tools for that. And if you don't, that's okay. <laughs> so it was really not much of a rebellion and it didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah, I think out of uh, all the traditions, Buddhism is generally one of the most open in that way. I mean, especially in contrast to some of the organized religions that do become very strict and dog- dogmatic and then have the boomerang effect on the offspring that come up through that family lineage and go so radically uh, in opposition to it, right? It's sort of like, I can imagine your parents being like, yeah, great, whatever. You know, So what is there to rebel against really, in a sense? you know, That's very interesting. Um, how about, uh, you know, as someone who was what I perceive to be so karmically gifted in, I would think, uh, from my perspective, choosing parents and choosing an environment that would help facilitate your spiritual growth. Have you ever, or do you now have the sense that there was a karmic implication to your being birthed into that particular family? It's a good question. I think I was told that at a young age, but it's like everyone wants their kid to be special, right? Right. (laughs) Um, but I, I mean, if we look at Buddhism and we think, hey, this is, you know, to be taken at face value that, you know, there's multiple lifetimes, karma is real, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I say it that way because it's like everything else in Buddhism, I can very scientifically point to from my own experience and say, oh yeah, that's true. I get that. You know, oh, impermanence is true. Yes. Okay. That concept is true. I can't, I haven't found anything that's permanent and everlasting. Okay. I guess it's true multiple lifetimes, it's harder for me personally to just wholeheartedly like toe the party line because there's something here where I'm like, I don't remember that past lifetime. I don't remember any past lifetimes. And I know that some people do and that's good for them and that's their experience and they might more be able to toe this line. But for me, until I have that memory or until I go to another lifetime and I remember this lifetime or something like that, it's hard for me to just say definitively, yes, this is my experience. But if we believe in that, and that's it's great if we do. Then I think it is really interesting. It's like I, I'm a weird, unique thing in that it's pretty rare to find a second generation Western Buddhist. Um, not I think the common term is convert. Like someone is a convert Buddhist that they made a choice that they would you know take on Buddhist precepts or something like that. For me, it's always been a situation of like I was raised in this. I I, I mean, instead of saying this was my karmic predisposition, I'll just say it was great luck for me to have this upbringing, some people were like, oh, because you meditated early. Yes, but also more importantly, the view of Buddhism that's often taught is that we are not basically messed up. We're not basically wrong. We are basically good, whole, complete as is. We possess the same seed of wakefulness that the Buddha did. We have the same essence of him. So we too can wake up and become fully enlightened. This is very different than what I think many of us are raised with, which is the idea you're basically messed up, you're basically wrong. And the slight distinction here, but it is an important distinction, is between something happening, you make a mistake as a kid, and you're bad or you're, you you know, are wrong, as opposed to you did a bad thing or you acted confused, right? It's very different. It's less identifying as a bad or wrong being. And I, I know many people who had that idea of like, there's something fundamentally broken within me. And they then, many of us do, chase after a lot of external factors to try to fill that void, that sense of 
well, if I had a better job, if I had a better education, if I finally found that spouse, if I had a, a house instead of rented apartment, if I had a car, then I will be happy. But what happens when we actually go ahead and get that house, that job, that car, that spouse, that whatever, we then turn our attention to something new because it doesn't actually make us feel whole. Right. So the sense of being raised within a tradition that says inherently you're whole, complete, good as is, that's the mind-blowing part, in my opinion. It that's is. the real gift. That That's like, there was no confusion about that. I'll just say in terms of like interpersonal reactions, it's like, I'm basically good. You're basically good. I can work with you from there. Whereas even if you said something deeply insulting, I, w- I wouldn't be like, you know, Luke's a bad person. Like that's not the idea. It's like, oh, maybe he's acting in a confused way. Maybe he's in pain. Maybe he's suffering. It's different than you're right, I'm wrong or black and white thinking in general. That's really, yeah, that's such an important distinction. I think, unfortunately, this is, the basis of so many people being turned off to spirituality, I guess, primarily as it comes through secular religions that do have uh, more of a judgmental undertone and this concept of sin, which I've come to really identify in my own life. And I was never, you know, thankfully pushed into religion, which I think made me very open to finding God in my mid twenties, because it was, a, I had a blank uh, canvas with which to paint um, or on which to paint, but it's like, when you're given the message that there, it's a it's a it's a losing game that you will never be pure because you're born a sinner and you're born so flawed, and it almost leads one to uh, take the perspective. Well, why even try? You know, I'm just going to go pursue my animal nature and just and just operate in the lower realms and just call it a day and get what I want and take 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 and have this sort of rapacious attitude toward life because you know, wh- why bother? And I think that that teaching of being whole and complete is so um, liberating in so many ways. And then it's a matter, um, and I want to see if you share this perspective, because this is how I feel about myself. And I'm, I'm working all of the time to perceive myself truly as a divine being that has incarnated here uh, for the sake of good and for the sake of love. However, uh, as as life uh, happens, you encounter situations in which you're traumatized and perhaps you take some of that on and then you become a traumatizer of sorts uh, at different times in your life. And it seems to me that the game of spirituality is not in adding anything, but rather removing the things that obscure you from being who and what you truly are. Would you share that view and perhaps expand on it if so? Yeah, I think it's it's a beautiful way of putting it. And there's this sense of like, we come into this life and it's this concept that I've mentioned before of like basic goodness, Buddha nature. It's not a far out idea that, you know, you can be like, I'm going to debate him on it. We see it when we look at a young child, right? That this is, you know, my, if the wonderful perspective of being like a godfather to like way too many young kids. Um, and they, every single one of them that I have this relationship with, I'm looking at them and I'm like, they don't know that they're supposed to want something more. They don't know that they, you know, have to go to a certain school in order to be happy. There's these concepts have not yet been taught and they seem pretty effing okay with themselves. And that's really amazing, right? So it's the sense of we've been conditioned at some point to that story of not enoughness, as opposed to being conditioned to you're already enough, you have enough. We're told, well, when you get dot, 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 then you'll be happy. And 
that's not our natural state. It's just not. I mean, it's like, it'd be hard to find a child who comes out of the womb and says, I need to go to Harvard in order to actually get by in life. Like, that's not what the kid says. Right. It's just, but at some point, that might be a story that gets passed down from an educator, a parent, a grandparent, anyone. And they adopt it and it, it lodges in their head. And at some point, as you said, like the more stories we take on and the more we sort of reify, in the Buddhist sense, we would call it ego, uh, the more we feel like there's, we have a lot to lose. And then ultimately we end up uh, defending the ego in a lot of big ways. And that creates a lot of pain and confusion. How would you define ego from the Buddhist perspective? Um, in sure. that I think many of us perceive the ego as being kind of in the realm of sin, right? Where it's a bad thing that we have to spend our lives trying to get rid of. And in my experience um, and evolution, it's been more of a uh, what I think has served me the most in terms of my own spiritual growth has been really in embracing the ego and making friends with it and seeing it as just a part of the human psyche that was put there by the creator in order to fulfill a certain role and that it's just become overactive or I've become over-identified with it and therefore it creates a pathology of sorts mentally and emotionally, but never truly something that you can absolutely get rid of. What's what's your take on, on the common way that yeah. we perceive the ego and the way that we deal with it in day-to-day life? Yeah. I think that there's this sort of like dismantling, like let's first define what the ego is. I think I'm a Lodro, right? And I, I sort of cling to this notion of what a Lodro is. And there's... God, I'm going to be so effing geeky. I apologize. But there's like, from a Buddhist perspective, five ways that I generally check out this lodra. There's my form, i.e. my body. There's my um, feeling tone, the way I go about dividing the world up into I like this, I don't like this, I am actively ignoring this. There's the fact that I uh, have these sense perceptions which make contact with the world around me and make it about me. There's the fact that I have all these mental formations, i.e. thoughts that reify the stories about what I am. And then there's our my consciousness, this amorphous thing that sort of right now is directing the sense perceptions and the feelings to you. And then right then we can move over here and it's somewhat of a puppet master, we could say. All these things come together to form a lodra. The body is perhaps the easiest one to talk about because this is not the same body I had before. I said that every cell that I have has died and has been replaced over the period of seven years. It is a completely different body than a lodra from seven years ago. My understanding of who I think I am is different than seven years ago. There have been learnings that have happened over the years that I continue to adapt. And so it's this like conglomeration of wisdom and experience that's just constantly changing. So the idea of a Lodro, it's very hard to trace. The person who's sitting with you now, next time we sit down to podcast another couple of years, it might be a completely different Lodro then too. And it's just the nature of the beast that it's I myself like to think of me as one solid thing, even though it is completely out of touch with reality. Buddhism at its core, Professor Robert Thurman, who's one of these early academic scholars of of Buddhism in the West, um, particularly Tibetan Buddhism, is fond of saying Buddhism is realism. And I love that. The sense of like, it's just the reality of our situation, that the way I conceive of myself isn't actually true. I am not these things. I am not. If I cut off my arm, I'm still a Lodro, but only because I conceive of him. And I mean, we can get really effing tripping here. Like I can hold up a $20 bill and say, this is worth $20 because it has Andrew Jackson's face on it. 
of course, hopefully maybe this will change and there'll be someone else's face on it. Um, but it's it's our shared belief and our shared understanding that it's worth 20 George Washington bills that make that so. And it's, it's just all concept is what I'm talking about here. So all of the concepts that I hold about Elodra, the more I empty myself out of those concepts, the more I actually discover that underneath the stories I tell myself, there's a sense of wakefulness, there's a sense of presence, there's an open-hearted way to actually manifest. But you know, particularly around this new book, Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times, the way I talk about it is like most of us just go through life with this veil of anxiety blocking us from the reality of our world around us. Instead of even just deconstructing the self, we're, we're just walking around focusing on the anxiety of the day. Well, I'm going to be late to this thing and people are going to think I'm unprofessional and so on and so forth. And then it's like, that's all we can't actually be with our world. We get in the car, we drive somewhere. We don't even know how we got there because we are so lost in our stories. We're so not present to actually what's happening in the world. So a lot of meditation really is just lifting this veil, see our reality more clearly, see who we truly are as opposed to the stories we tell about ourselves or worse yet, the things that just obscure us from ourselves. So in that model, wherein you have kind of these five phenomena that are projecting a reality into your experience, presumably for the benefit of who and what you really are as conscious awareness, as a, as a conscious being entity, right? Out of the formless, taking form, and then having these sensory experiences that tell you who and what you are. <laughs> Would you say then it's a fool's errand to try to get rid of that? And just be pure conscious awareness. I mean, would you ever get up and you know feed the dog and uh, go about your business, or do we need a certain part of that ego framework in order for us to kind of do our uh, do our duty here and do the role that we've been assigned or that we've volunteered for as an incarnated being? Yeah, it's it's very easy for us to fall into almost a nihilistic perspective of like, oh, if I don't really exist, then what what does it matter? That's not the point. There's, I should have brought props. I'm talking a lot about money today. It's two sides of the same coin. So there's on one side, these teachings on egolessness, emptiness, that we can empty ourselves out of all the concepts that we have about ourselves, our fixed opinions about who we are, what we need to be happy and so on. The other side of that is that's like an ultimate capital T truth or absolute truth. The other side of that coin is more relative truth, which is the truth of compassion. I could say I am empty of absolute, of, of like a permanent sense of nature and so on and so forth. And yet at the same time, I still have meetings to attend, right? Like I can't negate that. On a relative level, I show up here and I relate to you and then I relate to someone else and so on and so forth. So we have to balance these two. And there's a sense of sort of the capital T truth of absolute nature and, and emptiness and egolessness and all of that. But that does not negate the fact that we then have relate to people on a relative level and we need to actually be kind. We need to be compassionate. So that's the grounding element. It's like you're empty of, of all of these different components. They're not as, you're not as solid and real and fixed as you might suspect. You're constantly changing and evolving. And also you need to go to work. Yeah. You need to pay your bills. Yeah. Do you find that over time through your meditation practice, and I want to get into um, in a few minutes what that looks like and if that changes or evolves or how, how much you stick to your tradition, but um, do you find that with time over meditation that you and all of the, I'm presuming thousands of people that you've taught to meditate, that you're able to 
drop into that place of pure awareness and increasingly emerge out of those periods of uh, stillness and go about your day-to-day business of being you, but still keeping kind of one foot in the door of the meditation room or, you know, uh, a toe on the cushion, so to speak, where there's a mindfulness and a meditative way in which you're going about even being very busy and very productive. Have you found that that's something that is cumulative or do you have to kind of relearn that as you go? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so we have this term meditation practice. Let's start there. (laughs) If I said I'm going to practice the guitar, there's an assumption that at some point I would play the guitar for friends, might play it in a band, who knows. Meditation practice implies I'm practicing for something. So what am I practicing for? If I'm trying to become more mindful, more compassionate in the practice, that implies I'm practicing for the other waking hours of my day. So there is, as you said, a cumulative thing. There's sort of the conscious and unconscious ways that we start to manifest meditation. On in an con- unconscious way, I've often had people come up to me and they say, "So, I missed my flight back from London the other day, and I was stuck over there, and we had to cancel all of these business meetings. And my business partner and I were talking through the logistics. I said any other questions? He goes, "Yeah, why aren't you freaking out right now? These were big things that we now have to push off." He goes, "I don't know." And this business partner knows him well, and he goes, "Is it because you've been meditating?" He goes. I guess it's because I've been meditating. We're often the last people to notice that yeah. meditation has actually helped us, right? Like it's always our like loved ones that are reflecting it back and be like, oh, you're a better listener than you used to be. It's not like if you are trying to lose weight and you exercise a lot and you get on the scale, you can say, oh, I lost three pounds. It's a little bit harder with meditation where it's like you don't always know and see how the practice, as you said, accumulates and starts to show up in subtle ways where we're just showing up for our life in a more present, more mindful situations. Um, And then there's the conscious ways that we can manifest mindfulness, which is us actually saying, all right, now that I've learned the skill set, let me see how I can apply it to my dinner with family every night, my morning coffee and actually just tasting my morning coffee, my shower, actually feeling the warmth of the shower and smelling the smell of the soap and the whole thing. So we could also consciously say, I'm going to be present for this, but more often than not, the accumulation of, of days, weeks, months, years of meditation practice, it affects us more than we actually know. Yeah, that's that's a great analogy that, you know, practicing guitar, right? Because it's even subjectively easier to quantify the skill improving, right? And, you know, the friends and family come over, you play them a little ditty, they're like, God damn, you're getting really good, right? And and you can hear it, you have ears to hear, right? And you go, oh man, there was this piece that I was trying to pick up that was difficult two years ago and now I've mastered it, right? But when it comes to this more ambiguous way of just interfacing with our day-to-day reality, it is a lot harder to quantify that, especially subjectively ourselves, you know? It's, I think, really important to kind of be constantly inventorying so that we can mark our progress. And, you know, of course, being mindful of, um, you know, the nature of the ego to want to come take credit and be like, I'm so spiritual now, I'm enlightened, right? There's that side of us. But if we can do so with some humility, isn't there value in kind of, you know, marking our progress and seeing like, wow, when I used to hear a dog bark, I would get really anxious or someone slammed a door or tension with my, you know, coworkers or whatever the thing it is that you find most triggering to really take some time along the way to to mark that progress as 
as a means by which to um, keep the enthusiasm and vigor up for the practice. Because with something like meditation, I mean, and, and, and maybe you could speak to this, I think to many people, they're like, especially the more A-type personalities, they're like, why would I meditate? I'm not doing anything, you know? And that's really the point of meditation is not doing anything. So if you're, if you're doing something that's a not doing anything, what's the point unless you're seeing results from not doing anything, if that makes sense? Not to give a Dr. Seuss riddle on that, but <laughs> it really is kind of a, it's such a mysterious practice that it's like by doing nothing once or twice a day for a period of time with some degree of consistency and dedication, you bring a different level of awareness, skill, prowess to the things that you are doing when you're out doing things. Yeah. But you know, how do how do we keep track? Like, what are some ways that you notice within yourself that, like, oh, I'm making progress rather than just kind of going, well, I've been meditating for 20 plus years and like it just is what it is, whatever. It's just what I do. So I just keep doing it. Like, how do you keep it exciting and quantify it? I guess would be the question. Yeah, it's a good question. Um I think we have to take the long view with meditation practice. And this is one of those, you know, as I mentioned, one of the things I do is I, I train meditation teachers. I lead mindfulness teacher trainings and things like that. And one of the things I always talk with them about is this, like where sort of anyone who becomes a meditation teacher ends up on the front lines of uh, education campaign or a re-education campaign about what meditation is and why it works. And one part of it is that people feel like, oh, I sat in a half hour meditation class. It should feel like a half hour massage. I should be able to walk out feeling relaxed. I should feel bliss. And what they often feel is, wow, I just had to sit with my mind and my mind is effing wild. It's all over the place. Maybe, maybe meditation is making me crazier. No, it's not. Your mind's always been wild. You just never looked. You just never opened the door and saw that. Um, but that's where we start. And then we sort of work our way backwards into a, a perhaps a more spacious and more peaceful place because that exists within us. Point here being, the effects themselves are so subtle that it's often very hard for us to just immediately say, okay, it's been two weeks. Now I am 5% kinder or more present or whatever it is. But when we look back over the course of our life, it's actually a really big deal because what we're saying is, I'm taking myself from, if, let's use an analogy. If I'm a boat and I'm sailing across the ocean, I have a very predetermined course. Unless I go one degree off course, two degree off course, five degrees off course. If I go five degrees off course over the, across an ocean, I'm going to end up in a radically different land. Same thing. It's like, maybe we don't immediately like level up and become, you know, there's some sort of marker that pops up over our head and says, you now have, you know, this much better karma points or you are this percentage more wakeful. But over the course of our lifetime, we say, oh, I'm moving in a different direction than I was before. For me, particularly around the new book, um, Take Back Your Mind, there's this bar graph that comes into my mind sometimes where it's like, there's one bar that says 90, one bar that says 10. And the 90 bar is like amount of energy I put into um, anxiety. <laughs> and then 10% I'm more present. But every time that it goes down to 89%, that's 11% present. Like we naturally become more present. And gradually we start to say, oh, wait, maybe it's starting to invert. Maybe the instead of losing, let's say we have a stressful trigger occur in our life, instead of losing um, a day, two days, three days to playing out the same what if stories. What if this happens? What if that happens? It's an hour. 
we lose an hour to it. Seven hour, we catch ourselves and say, hold on, hold on. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe I don't have to go down this rabbit hole. Same thing. It's like over and over again, we're actually learning um, how that we don't have to give ourselves um, this bandwidth to just run after every anxiety producing story that comes up. We can shift the focus. And when we do, we actually learn to be more present overall. So ultimately, it's like a long, it's a long game, <laughs> like learning an instrument. We don't pick up a musical instrument and say, I learned it in a day. It's after a year, your friends come over and they say, you start to play, you're starting to play better, right? Like it's not, like <laughs> yeah. it's been two days and they're like, I mean, so you're incredibly gifted. Same thing <laughs> with meditation. If someone hears this and um, meditates and comes back two days later to us and is like, yeah, you know what? Everyone around me is like, I'm just totally peaceful now. I want that because then we can put that in the brochure for, for your podcast. You know, like this is good endorsements, but I, more often than not, it's going to take a little bit of time. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. This podcast would not be possible without our friends over at Just Thrive Health. And they've been with the show for quite a while now and one of the sponsors that I feel most grateful and proud to support and present to you. In so doing, I rarely like to clown on competitive products. It's not really my style to say, oh, this brand is the best and the rest of them suck. But I must be honest, uh, as someone who's tried to fix my gut in numerous ways, especially with a lot of very expensive probiotics over the years, I have to say that most probiotics I've ever tried were a complete waste of time, energy, and money, with the exception of the Just Thrive probiotic. What makes Just Thrive probiotics so special is that they're spore-based, and this allows them to survive the treacherous journey into your GI tract where they can make themselves at home and do what they're supposed to do. And for this reason, it's a really unique and incredible product. It's also something kids at just about any age can take. Parents can sprinkle it into the food or drinks of little ones. It can also be baked or fried up to 455 degrees and still retain 100% potency. Isn't that crazy? It's also ideal for pregnant moms to be to support a healthy microbiome for themselves and their babies. You know, newborns get their first big dose of microbes at birth while traveling through the birth canal. It also contains a very special strain of bacteria that can maintain its effectiveness when taken with antibiotics. Now talk about crazy awesome. You know, that's one of the issues when you're taking antibiotics, if you're in a position to have to do so, is that they're going to ultimately uh, cause some dysbiosis, to say the least. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it politely there. So I'm one, again, who wasted so much money trying to take probiotics during a cycle of antibiotics, which is probably futile. However, it's not with just Thrive spore-based probiotics. So if you want to check this out, I highly recommend that you do. So if you want to get your hands on some of these Just Thrive probiotics, here's what you do. Go to justthrivehealth.com slash Luke. That's justthrivehealth.com slash Luke. And of course, we've got a discount for you. It's 15%. And the code there is Luke15 at justthrivehealth.com. And now back to the interview. Yeah, I think that's a really important distinction too for those that are results oriented or even for people, let's say someone uh, like myself who's really committed to the path and self-realization is the goal, the only goal, then the only one that matters, you know, call it enlightenment, call it what you want, but reaching the highest plane of consciousness that God allows me and assists me in achieving within this lifetime, right? But that being the goal and 
quite a lofty goal because you figure there's only a certain number of people of humans alive on the planet at any given time that have arrived at that place, like Buddhahood or whatever you want to call it. Um, it is difficult to not kind of beat up on yourself because there are those moments of humanity again, right? There are those moments where we do get triggered and we think, oh my God, I've been meditating for all these years and I've been reading all the spiritual books and doing all the things. And then here I am again, totally triggered, being less than compassionate, less than patient, less than kind to others and to myself. But the point you made in there that I think is so important is really in observing how fast do I recover when I have a, an egoic burst or you know a mind storm of negative thoughts or anything like that. And I am so grateful uh, to report that I do notice year over year, month over month, that um, when I do get out of sorts, I bounce back much faster. And it used to be, it could have been uh, a number of days or even weeks that I would remain in a really uh, painful state emotionally and mentally. I mean, once it caught me, I used to tell my friends, um, this is like early in sobriety when I first got sober, I just had so many problems with mental illness and just emotional dysregulation and it was just a train wreck. And um, I used to tell my friends, I'm, I'm in it. We just, we would just say like, I'm in it. And you know, what is it? It's you're just in a fight or flight nervous system response. You're just completely dysregulated. And I used to tell them like, yeah, I've got it. And it's kind of like catching the flu. It was just, a, it was a matter of like days and days that you would just have to suffer. <laughs> You know, or at least I believed I had to suffer uh, before I was able to come out of it and like feel normal again. You know, just can't eat, can't sleep, just completely freaked out by sometimes like externally insignificant events, right? But I would, because of unhealed traumas and all the things and being new at meditating, even something seemingly insignificant could be enough to tip the scale into total insanity. And you know, as I said, year over year now, it's such actually a pleasure and a joy, but it does take a little bit of mindfulness to even notice that I'll flip out. Even just a couple of days ago, I was setting up for a podcast. And of course, the things didn't work and I didn't have the right cables and the things. And I was super pissed off. I felt very unspiritual. Anyone in the room would have been like, wow, this guy is a basket case. Uh, and I was. But then, you know, five minutes went by. I came up with a solution, got back to being my happy self and had an incredible two-hour interview and totally forgot all about the thing. But I think what's important for us is, is really kind of you know keeping a log along the way, right? Like, and not beating ourselves up when we deviate from the path of, of conscious awareness, mindfulness, kindness, et cetera. It's not about whether we fell out. It's about like the game of how quick can we get back in, right? And I think that, um, you know, to your point, that's where the dedication comes in the practice. Even though there are times where one's passion for it can wane, you don't really know if you're getting results. Maybe, you know, you're trying 50 different types of meditation because the one you first learned doesn't seem to be working anymore and this kind of stuff. So I just, I want to make that as a statement to people like, don't, don't give up faith. Don't give up your practice because if you start tracking your results, you're still going to be human for a time, but I believe that, and this is perhaps I can carve this into a question is, you know, is that not the path of enlightenment, right? Where we're making incremental steps like that, progress little by little, bird by bird. And, you know, to, to quote Annie Lamott, the great uh, author who wrote the book of the same name about writing, but the spiritual path is the same. It's 
one little thing at a time. And hopefully at the end of that, we do achieve some perhaps more permanent higher state of consciousness. So in that, I'll, I'll get a question and that is, you know, how possible or likely is what we would call enlightenment in a lifetime? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I also want to point out like the story you told is great. It's, it's like, hey, here's an everyday scenario within which my mind went in a direction I didn't expect it to and I didn't love it. And then I was able to get myself back. There's a few parts here. One is the distinction between um, Luke is no longer a spiritual person because he flipped out over not having the right equipment for a moment versus Luke lost his head for a moment. He is a spiritual person. He was able to find it and come back. It's, it's this like room for the mistakes that ought to and need to be made in the spiritual path um, that we all fall down on the job. Right. If we if we didn't all fall down on the job, that would mean we were already enlightened. But if we're working towards enlightenment, we're going to stumble, we're going to make mistakes. And we also have to give one another grace around that and say, okay, you know, I get that. What, is there learning that is happening here? Is there acknowledgement? Are you planning to repeat this mistake? No? Okay, great. You know, it's sort of like we learn. So this is the second element that when we fall down on the job spiritually, and Lord knows I have. Don't get me wrong. What happens with that information? Do we seek to learn from it? Do we seek to understand how it doesn't mesh with you know what we want to see in our spiritual life? And do we move forward with that? Ideally, resolving not to do it and actually follow through in the future. So that's it's actually a really powerful thing that you just talked about. And I think it's, it's a core element where people think um, they get in their head that if they have a lot of thoughts in meditation, they flip out at their partner or whatever, that they have somehow ruined their spiritual path or that they are not fit to be on a spiritual path or any of that. And that's not true. There's the truth that you're basically good, whole, complete as is. And sometimes you act from a confused state. And those two can actually coincide all the way up to enlightenment. And to actually answer your question then, yeah, I really do believe that people can attain enlightenment, but it, that's part of it. It's like that, those stumbles along the spiritual path that we all have our own obscurations. We all have our own proclivities. Some of us, it is, it is anxiety. For us, some of us, it's jealousy and comparing mind for some of us it's anger that we're always prone to anger and acting out on it these things the more we start to know them and become familiar with them the more we're like okay this is part of the spiritual path i've got to work with it directly and then ultimately um the more i work on those obscurations the more available i am to the world around me from a place of wakefulness so they're even though they don't feel good they're actually good for us and that's how we move towards Enlightenment. To answer your question, yeah, I 100% believe that people will can attain enlightenment. And how would you define enlightenment from, from that perspective? Yeah, good question. So there's... I this love that element. every time I, I ask you a question, you're like, that's a good question. I'm like, yeah, I'm killing it. <laughs> you, you are. You are killing it. So um, far, I think I'm like 10 for 10. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's these, these are all fascinating topics. And it's also, I appreciate, I'll just say... Um, that we're moving from not just like, what, tell me more about like how to do mindfulness, which we absolutely can get into if people are interested. But, um, but like really, like how do we actually, like what's the next step? And I mean, that's really where so much of my interest lies in recent years. It's like, where do we go once we've started meditating? What is the path? Because there's, you can watch YouTube videos, you can take a class online, you can do any number of things to learn how to meditate. But there's not enough conversation, in my personal opinion, of where do we go from there? And that's what we're talking about because 
if we're serious about the Buddhist path, where are we going from there is actually waking up to our own Buddha nature, the same essence that the Buddha had, the same wakefulness that he had. So to answer your question, the thing that is enlightenment is my understanding of it, my limited perspective is that we are waking up to reality as it is, not as we perceive it to be through our confused ego state. So I have a lot of ideas about like this house and this, this thing, then so that thing. And when I empty myself out, going back to our previous conversation around egolessness, emptiness, what am I left with? I'm left with a feeling of wakefulness. So I could have a glimpse of that. I could have a glimpse of enlightenment here and there in my practice where I'm just resting with the breath. I'm just open and I'm present. I'm okay. It's all there. Then it's no longer a lodro or another teacher telling you you have enlightenment in you. It's you saying, oh yeah, I had that experience. Having had a moment where I felt basic sense of okayness, goodness is is. Where do I go from there? Well, I can go to uh, having two moments of that. I can have four moments of that. I can have six. And then it continues on in that direction. And we are now basing our, our faith, our trust, all, however we want to put it, in the confidence of our own experience as opposed to a philosophy that someone's telling us. So the idea of, you know, how do we become enlightened? You might already had a glimpse of it and now you're just going to have to work towards stabilizing that. So the entire Buddhist path, as far as I can tell, is that we have a discovery moment where we realize our Buddha nature or our basic goodness. We just, oh, in this moment, I'm okay as is. I'm just in here breathing, I'm all right. The majority of the path is that we then um, spend months, years, decades developing deeper trust and confidence in relationship to that experience. And then the fruition of that would be that we actually live our life through the lens of that experience. Very well stated. You know, it brings to mind uh, someone like uh, Ram Das. you know, God, God rest his soul, one of my favorite teachers. And, um, and some of the other, you know, spiritual teachers it, more in the cosmonaut realm, right? That used for a period of time, uh, psychedelics, plant medicines, et cetera, to get a glimpse into what we might be defining here as enlightenment, right? Where you're just in a state of pure consciousness. And I myself have had many profound experiences uh, in a very similar way. But the parallel there, I think, is like in a really deep meditation, when you, when you had that moment and you're like, aha, that was it. You know those sweet spots you hit. As a longtime meditator, I'm, I'm sure you know them well. And then there tends to be, and in the same way with these peak experiences some folks have with psychedelics and entheogens, et cetera, there's like a, a tendency toward a grasping and wanting to hang on to that state, right? Because you've hit this sublime level of supreme truth and reality and, and the knower within you knows that it was real, knows that you were there participating in it, observing it experiencing it on all levels. And then it's kind of like this sand that slips through your fingers, you know, and you're like, ah, I had it. Right. And then you come out of the meditation or you come out of the ceremony or whatever it was that took you to that place. And there's almost this longing and this sense of like, ah, now I got to come back down to the earth plane and work for it again. You know? Um, so how do we, develop a taste for the sweetness of pure consciousness without getting attached to it? It's a great question. Sorry, I know I keep saying that. But I'm <laughs> it's just okay, keep it coming. It won't go to my head. <laughs> okay, good. Um, 
there's, it's, 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 I think the word you use is really appropriate, which is sometimes we get attached to these things and that doesn't serve our, our experience. I, it's not a great uh, analogy, but it's like having a, a, a drug that in heroin, I guess, has this effect that the first time you do heroin, it's a high unlike anything else. And then people get addicted to it because they're chasing that experience again, but they actually can't replicate it. But that's how they get addicted because they're always chasing that initial high. And I, I can um, verify that based okay. on personal experience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely um, correct. <laughs> For you right? kids listening, just say no, trust me. Just say no, seriously, <laughs> yes. Um, but similarly, when we have a state where, let's say, things fall away a little bit and the things that fall away, are, we talked about emptiness, like my sense of self, my sense of a lodro, it can fall away for a moment. And I have a sense of maybe bliss or clarity or non-thought. These are three things I know. Nyam would be the Tibetan word, N-Y-A-M, uh, which is like meditative experiences, uh, bliss, clarity, non-thought being three prominent ones. And in that, we might say, this is, the, this is the real deal. This is what's supposed to be. I should always feel this way. And anytime I don't feel this way, I need to chase this feeling. And that sense of like chasing is actually going to undermine our whole practice. So generally, when you see experienced teachers are approached with these sorts of stories, they're like, that's nice. I think Suzuki Roshi, the, uh, the Japanese Zen teacher, was once said, you know, this person explained a very enlightening experience, really lots of beautiful experiences within the practice. He said, that's nice. How's your work? <laughs> it's, it's like that bringing it back, as we said earlier, to the relative. Okay, but what does this mean in terms of how you show up for your life? Because the, the point isn't to live in a bliss state. The point isn't to be without thought. The point is to um, live in awake and compassionate life. So... Those states, by the way, are, are generally said not to be enlightenment itself, but like precursors. Um, so, even, you know, it's very easy for us to say that, but even if we put in like, shouldn't use hierarchies, I suppose, but it's not quite enlightenment. So keep going. It's like generally don't get too attached and just keep going is the idea. Yeah, I think those rare glimpses of that samadhi state, uh, if one is aware of the propensity toward attachment to them, can also be really encouraging, right? Because you go into a, however you get there, right? You go into a state of pure awareness where you're merging with consciousness like that. I don't know, to me, after having worked through some of those attachments I described, it's like, at least I know that that place exists within me, right? And within the, the, the fabric of, of consciousness and the universe as a whole. So it almost makes it easier to take all of this earthly experience a little less seriously because the knower in you, the witness of that phenomenon is still present. And yeah, okay, um, I'm opening the mail and it's the envelope says internal revenue service. And I'm like, <clears throat> right. But because you've experienced pure consciousness at some point or many times throughout whatever practices brought you there, it's like, okay, I see that impulse come up within me of fear. Oh my God, they're going to get me. They're going to take my money. At the same time, you realize like this, this, this piece of paper is not real. The ink representing certain numbers on it is not real. Even the numbers that are represented by some digital uh, you know, pixels on my keyboard when I log into my bank account to see if I can pay that tax bill are not real, right? Ultimately, all of the world of form is just kind of a, a projection of 
one of the many uh, multitudinal uh, projections of consciousness in this crazy interdimensional experience we're having. So there's like an acknowledgement that this dimension is not as serious and therefore not as threatening and uh, and and just scary as it would be had I not at least had a glimpse into that state of pure consciousness and awareness. So there, there enables one, at least in my experience, to be a bit more playful with the dance here, being in a body, having a name, being a Luke, you know, having physical needs, like, right, being, being like in my animal self, there's still the higher self that's going, okay, you're, you're kind of just playing animal for a while and you be the best behaved animal you can while you're here, you know, karmically speaking. But there is um, much less seriousness about the whole thing. And I think, again, that for me is one of the big motivators to keep exploring consciousness in all the ways so that when I come back here and I let go of the attachment of the peak experience, then I can just be a bit looser about all of it and not take myself so seriously. You know, case in point being the, the microphone meltdown the other day, it's like, you know, get caught up in the moment and realize like, wait a minute, this this so doesn't matter. This is like so far out of the realm of mattering at all in the great scheme of things in the big picture. And there comes um, a lightness and kind of a playfulness to even getting stressed out and dropping the ball and, you know, acting like a dick for a minute. You know, it's like, it's okay. And I think um, that really speaks to the, to the importance of, of commitment, even in periods where you feel like it's not working, you know, um, in your life as a longtime meditator and teacher of teachers and teacher of meditators, have you had um, any dark nights of the soul where you just thought, oh, God has forsaken me. This path is bullshit. I'm, I've made no progress. What, you know, like that thing where you, you just kind of want to give up on the whole thing and just go, it was all a waste of time. Has it ever gotten that, that bleak for you? It's interesting because I I don't think it's ever gotten that bleak for me about like not trusting the practice because I've seen the benefits. I do think, you know, like the idea of enlightenment feeling very far is certainly something. Um, but also just like dark night of the soul is also some, when we when I do this bar graph of like 90% anxiety, 10% presence, and then ideally moving the presence up and the anxiety down. It's not like this is entirely without provocation. Like stressful things happen in life, things throw us for loops. So there's definitely, I mean, in my last book, which was on heartbreak, uh, Love Hurts, Buddhist Advice for the Heartbroken, it was the sense of, um, it's so funny, I just realized I replicated a subtitle. <laughs> to, so that was the last book. The new one is Take Back Your Mind, Buddhist Advice for Anxious Times. So, okay, now I'm, I've got a new theme with these titles. Good to know. Um, anyway, point being that I talked about a time in 2012, 2013, where everything fell apart. You name it. I mean, uh, job loss. Uh, I was engaged to be married. Uh, and that person decided not, this was not right for her. And that's totally fine. But at the time it was devastating. Um, one of my best friends passed away and then my father passed away. And this is in the span of maybe nine months total, something like that. Sounds about right. And um, somewhere within there, I mean, it's like it all went off out the window. It, the dark night of the soul aspect in terms of the practice is that I wasn't practicing at that point. I fell off the cushion, so to speak. And I, I am very open in the book that you know there is a lot of suicidal ideation. There wasn't a lot keeping me going other than there was still this aspiration that I wanted to help people. 
And my first book had come out at that point and was helping people. It was doing quite well. And I was like getting a lot of like, oh, this is, thank you for this book. It's like the first book that's really speaking to me. It's actually getting me meditating. I was like, okay, he's under contract to finish the second book. I said, I'll do it. I'll finish the second book. And then I'll see how I feel. If, if I really feel horrible after the second, kill myself after the second book. And um, I mean, this is, this is the logic when you're in I know. these states. Yeah. Um, and I had wonderful friends really who were able to swoop in and see that I was really not myself anymore and get me into therapy. And from there, I was able to come back to some semblance of myself and long enough to meditate and get back on the path. Um, so there, it's a different sort of dark night of the soul. It, I never really gave up on like meditation is bullshit. It wasn't that, but it was like, it's it's just, it's so far removed from what where I was that it felt very hard to even want to work with my mind. Um, and I needed other tools, which is why I often tell people that when they are in, in these states, these two things can go hand in hand very nicely, therapy and meditation. It's helpful for us to have, you know, someone that we work with not necessarily a meditation teacher, although I often recommend people work with live meditation teachers, but a trained therapist that can actually help us undo some of the knots that were sort of forming in our minds. And that can actually then be supported by meditation. Meditation can support that and vice versa. Yeah, that's a really good point. Actually brings me to something I wanted to cover with you. And that was trauma and <laughs> how meditation can have a strange way of actually bringing up a lot of the stuff that's been repressed and suppressed over the course of our lives. Uh, when I first um, learned to meditate in the Vedic tradition from a man named Jeff Kober um, out in California, great guy, amazing teacher. Um, he learned from Tom Knowles, who I know you know. And um, so, you know, he taught me the practice. He gave me my mantra and I had already been meditating for many years, but just kind of picking up bits and pieces of it from here and there. I didn't really have like a specific practice. And um, at that time, I mean, my meditation changed so dramatically because I had a very specific um, um, practice. It wasn't just like winging it, trying to be quiet and fighting with my thoughts. You know, he really did a great job of creating a framework for me. But what happened was when I first started doing Vedic meditation is I became, uh, over the course of a few months, so irritable and more angry and more dissatisfied with life. It was, it was having like the opposite effect of anything you could ever hope meditation would do for you. And I would go to him and be like, dude, what, like, what's this mantra you put in my head? Like this, I am going nuts. And I was like regressing, perceivably regressing from where I was before I started. And, and he explained it to me like this is that you know, Luke, you've picked up all these stressors in your life through your experiences. And he didn't use the word trauma, but now I have a greater understanding of trauma because I've done so much work around it and talked to so many experts um, in that field. But he said, so what's happening is essentially your body now is letting go of all of these stresses that you've packed in it for all of these years. And it's the first time that you've really given your subconscious room to kind of come out of hiding and express itself and all these things. And it's, it's almost like when you buy a new piece of furniture and it off gases and stinks like formaldehyde for two weeks or whatever, it's just part of the process. Trust the process, have faith. There will be a time when your meditation actually leads to a more peaceful state of being rather than you becoming more of a jerk. And he was right. But that led to some years later, finding in areas in my life in which I was stuck and really having to go into all the therapy and eventually plant medicines and like a lot of deep digging 
in order to get the stuff that was underneath. But it seems to me now in hindsight that that really dedicated twice a day for 20 minutes practice that I was very consistent with uh, most of the time, that it kind of cleared the ground so that some of that deeper work could be dealt with and frankly had to be dealt with if I was going to have any semblance of satisfaction and happiness in my life. So do you think that, I mean, I guess the question is sort of multifaceted, but A, I think this would depend on the degree of someone's trauma perhaps. And I think on a scale of one to 10, mine was probably a seven or eight, you know, based on people that I know. I mean, I'm not a, you know, a military vet or something like that, but I went through some heavy shit as a kid. I mean, do you think that meditation is capable of healing deep trauma in and of itself? Or do you think generally in your experience that it's something like in my case, where it just kind of opened the door for me to go do deeper work with other modalities as you've just described? I'm of the mind that it opens the door for sure. And it depends on the human being in terms of what then happens. And I think there are some of us who maybe were just raised with good mechanisms for working with the mind. Um, and there are some of us that were not so much. Um, I'm not going to make any sort of sweeping statement about trauma. I feel like that's something that I only in more recent years really started to unpack and understand and and look at my own, but also just like how this manifests amongst meditation students and it's it's a really wide range. Um, I also think that there's you know any number of meditation teachers that I'm friends with who are therapists and are also teaching on this quite regularly, which I think is really helpful because this was not previously something that people talked about, which is bonkers. Um, because there's a lot of people people don't come to meditation because they're like, I just wanted a new hobby, you know, like I was going to bake bread and then I was like, oh maybe I'll take meditation. It's like they're coming because they're suffering for some reason whether we would put a capital T trauma in front of that or not, you know, there, there's some dissatisfaction, some dis-ease, some um, heartbreak, often a loss of some sort. It could be a death or a relationship breaking up or any number of things. But this is what I've seen people come in. And within that, the meditation teacher can do certain things. They can, as you said, open the door. They can have conversations around this. But they are not going to be the person that's going to say, let's talk about your childhood history. Right, that's something that we may need a therapist for, and this is why when I do train meditation teachers, I always tell them to have someone's number in their back pocket because this does come up. That after class, someone comes to you and they say, "I have all of these things I want to talk to you about," and we are not trained to do that necessarily. Some people are, but more often than not, meditation teachers are not, and so we need to have other resources to refer people over to. Things that, particularly in our own, I will just say personally, I've been in therapy since 2012, um, you know, and that's wonderful. It's the same human being every Monday and I'm, it's been really good. And that doesn't make me broken. It doesn't make me less than as a meditation teacher. It means I'm actually, I think it's better because it's honest. It's like I, I work on my own shit. And if you find meditation teachers who pretend like they don't have shit and that they're not working, A, they're already enlightened. If so, great, go study with them. Or B, they're lying. It's one of the two. It's one of the two. So like we're all sort of, my analogy is like, when it comes to meditation teachers, I study with people and they're higher up the mountain than me and they're leading me up the mountain. And then I can work with people who are a little bit further back on the mountain and I can show them how I got up to where I am in terms of that mountain state. And they might even be now working with meditation students who are, they're helping just get going up the mountain. And that's sort of like, 
we're all working together. And that's also a notion of, of like lineage and tradition that it flows from someone down to me and then me down to others and so on and so forth. So I think it's, that's helpful, but it's very different than saying like, I can heal your trauma, which I would never say to a human being. I think it's something where it's like, we need to actually learn to work with our minds, but then also within that say, there are other resources that might be of benefit in addition to and correlate with the meditation practice. Well stated, agreed. Do you think uh, you've ever been in the presence of an enlightened being in the form of a human during your lifetime? And if so, who were they? I've thought that at times. And then I also am like, how do I know? <laughs> <laughs> right? Maybe it takes one to know one. All right. Like, I, I think so. I think I have. You know, my, there was, uh, when I was growing up, there was a teacher, there is a teacher, uh, Kempo Sultram Jamsa Rinpoche. And he is, I mean, we're talking old school Tibet, fled through the mountains during the Chinese communist invasion, taught in India, came to the West for a number of years, taught in Europe, taught in the United States, is now living out his final years back in India, overseeing a nunnery there. And um, it is soaking in his presence wakes me up. He could say very little and I become much more attuned to reality as it is, as a result of just being in his presence, I say, that is probably an enlightened being that every, everything I see around him, like when I'm actually resting in my natural state around him, I feel like enlightenment is possible. Um, I also study with, you know, as I mentioned, Keelan Grimpache, and I would like to think that he's enlightened. I'm testing the waters, actually, if I may be honest, um, to, to sort of poke at this and say, you know, not like I'm trying to provoke him in any way, but to spend time <laughs> around this person and, you know, notice how he treats his wife. You know, notice how he treats someone who, you know, drops the ball and makes a mistake. Notice, like, sort of like, you know, it's only been a few years of me working with this person and I've been really delighted by his deep kindness and his deep reverence for the teachings and ability to make them accessible. And his guidance, he's been so generous with me. He really is, is very moving. But um, I'm, you know, I think it's helpful for us to sort of poke at these people and say, you know, where are you in the scale? And it's okay, by, by the way, for me, if he's not fully enlightened, but he's like pretty close to the top of the mountain. <laughs> because I'm nowhere near the top of the mountain personally. And he, there's a lot of ways that he can help me up there. Yeah. So it's, I don't feel like everyone that I meet has to be enlightened in order to help me either. Yeah, I, I think it's just, uh, it's something, it's a human human and beyond human phenomena that I've always been fascinated by having had a couple experiences in my life. Uh, one, uh, I must've been eight or nine and I was taken to the ashram of a teacher named Muktananda and uh, I was just a kid, but it had such a profound impact on me. And now later in life, being many years on the spiritual path and being pretty um, dedicated, albeit imperfect, to the path, I just know that being in the presence of that being had a profound impact on my life. That there was just there was an energetic imprint, a shakti pot experience. There was something where that energy field got on me and in me, and it seeded something within me that went on to, um, you know, uh, spur more curiosity and uh, an impetus to keep kind of going and finding more people like that. But like the attachment to the enlightened state in these moments of samadhi that we experience, I think there's also a risk in the attachment to idealizing and putting that teacher or that person we perceive to be enlightened on a pedestal. Because in my experience, 
you were guaranteed to be disappointed at some point, right? Unless I guess they're a really high being and are truly enlightened and just, you know, in, in the realm of perfection, there's going to be moments where they disappoint you and you see through the veil, right? And uh, you go, oh man. So what would you say to people who, um, you know, have found a teacher and they, they perhaps have a put, put a teacher on a pedestal because they're further up the mountain than them? What would you recommend in terms of managing expectations and uh, things around that nature? Yeah, it's, you know, it's an interesting one because like, what do we, how, again, when you asked me, I was like, how do I exactly know for sure? Do I know for sure, sure? Like, I think I would have to be enlightened in order to be enlightened, in order to recognize someone is fully enlightened versus sometimes enlightened. And going all the way back to what I was saying of someone saying, oh, you know, I was able to rest with the breath for a moment or two. And I felt my sense of like, I'm okay in this moment. That person's been sometimes enlightened. It's just like, where are they in the spectrum then? <laughs> Between I've glimpsed my enlightenment and I am living through the state of my enlightenment. So there's some, I feel like it's on a spectrum. It's very easy for us on a spiritual path to want to fall into, this is right, this is wrong. This person is perfect. This person is evil. It is very hard for us in today's world to say everyone is human. These are human beings. And if someone is wakeful and they've actually worked through all of their obscurations, great. You know, study with them, but continue to put trust in your own experience as well. Not just entirely give yourself over. I think that's a little controversial, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, because the whole thing is you give yourself over entirely. But for most people, I think we sort of need to, you know, not that I'm a great role model, but I am poking at this and saying, you know, I can learn from this person. I can benefit from this person. I'm not, I'm going to also hold on to my own understanding and not just do everything this person says until I'm fully sure that this is an enlightened being. And that's once you're fully sure for sure, give, give yourself over and follow their instruction. Great. But for many of us, I think it's, it's okay to hold a sense of cynicism and not just cynicism for cynicism's sake, but like humanity. Like this is a human, they're, they're working on themselves. And the question I often pose in many situations is, and I'll apply it here is, is this person and their teachings leading me further towards my own wakefulness or further towards my confusion? And we can use that question for, as a barometer for any number of things. But I think particularly when we study with people, it's helpful to just say, I mean, if they're moving me closer to my wakefulness, then it's okay for me to keep studying with them and to recognize their humanity and not idolize them. And if they're, if I'm noticing that I'm more frustrated and I'm angry all the time, and maybe this is not the right person for me, maybe I should study with someone else. Very well stated. Yeah. And in my own experience too, it's like there are, you know, you, you get on with a teacher, maybe this analogy might serve the point. So you're in the basement, right? You're in lower states of consciousness and uh, you happen to meet a teacher there who has the ability to take you up a few floors. I've experienced where I've met someone and, and from my perspective, where I was on the scale, let's just use kind of a scale of consciousness. They were an enlightened being, okay, comparatively. But then we keep doing our work. I keep doing the work. I followed their teachings. And then at a certain point, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but it's almost like they got off the elevator and sort of got stuck at a certain floor for whatever reason. It was just not in their interest or karma to keep going. And they sort of got crystallized and stuck at a certain level. And I had to let go of my attachment to them as my teacher and keep going and keep my elevator moving. And then a couple floors up, I meet another teacher that has a different level of understanding or a different perspective, a different set of tools or teachings, modalities, et cetera. 
that I then adopt. And that takes me a bit higher and higher. But it seems like the way different teachings and books and teachers come into our lives and this experience is some of them are only meant to be there for a short period to kind of get us through a certain sucks, uh, stuck spot or a sucky spot too. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that one is going to have like one and only teacher for the rest of their days on the spiritual path. Have you had the experience where different teachings have served you for a period and then you sort of find yourself discarding them and moving on to something different? Yeah, I think they stay a part of me. Um, you know, even if I have moved on from studying with a teacher, which has happened in the past, um, then it's not like I, I can sort of separate out to some degree. It's like, well, there were many things that were actually helpful that I learned under this person. And I want to continue to carry that with me. It's not like that goes out the window, the training right. that I received. Right. When I say discard, I guess, to, I, let's say integrate. I've integrated that teaching, mm. added mm-hmm. the good parts of it to my arsenal, and then keep going and someone else presents itself. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of saying it. It's like, and only we will know the best way to discern what the right path is for us. And it's, it is so personal. And as you said, you know, it's like, oh, this person can take me to a certain point. And then I feel real desire to study with another person and that's okay. And you'll find with good spiritual teachers, they understand that, you know, that it's just at some point, no, like this is, you know, this has been super helpful. Thank you for getting me this far. And now I'm going to move on. That's great. I think that's really helpful for many people. Yeah. Encouraged, to be encouraged. And I would say if the teacher has a big problem with that, they might be a cult leader and not a teacher, right? <laughs> um, the last question I want to ask you, and then we'll wrap it up, is how would you help someone avoid one of the traps along the way? And that is once you start to achieve a state of higher consciousness or move closer toward enlightenment, grow spiritually, et cetera, how does one uh, guard against the ego's propensity to come and sort of create this false identity around being a spiritual person and all the accoutrement that comes with that, the beads, the orange robes, the, the title that you've created for yourself? Um, how can one progress yet maintain humility? Yeah, I, I think this is where it's helpful to have like a spiritual friend um, Within Tibetan Buddhism, we often talk about like three different types of teachers. One is an instructor. You go and you take, you know, right now I'm launching a five-week free class based on this new book, Take Back Your Mind. Um, so it's a class on anxiety. And for the poor, for the 500 plus people that have signed up so far, it's like, I'm the instructor of that, right? Like I offer teachings, but I actually don't know them very well because there's so many of them. Um, and I can try and you know, respond to some emails and things like that, which I will, but it's not like I get to know them well. Whereas when people join the online community and they work with me one-on-one, over the months that follow, we meet once a month, like I get to know them a little bit. And that's, I'm in that role, I'm more of a spiritual friend. The Sanskrit term would be Kalyana Mitra. So spiritual friend is someone who you actually start to talk about your practice and your study with regularly and they start to notice some of the proclivities that you might have and they might even start to say you know you're doing this thing again and they might it hopefully in a gentle way i'm gentle as well about this of like you know can we look at this pattern that has been playing out here and then the third type would be the teacher with the capital t like the guru which is the enlightened being that can point out our things but I think many people want the idea of the guru, but they are disappointed by the reality because you don't get to see the guru very often. They don't mind, they don't mind your business as much, I would say. But in any case, even if, you know, for me personally, it's like I have, you know, teachers that are 
guru level, but then I also have a lot of like spiritual friends, mentors that I can call up and talk about something. And it's been, you know, the longest relationship there is probably 16 years or something like that. And it's a lot of like time for someone to have known me and to see my patterns and to sort of say, oh, look, you're doing that thing, huh? So I think it's good for us to have people in our community, sometimes called Sangha, that can call us out on some of the shit that we are trying to pull. Um, it's helpful to have colleagues, friends like that. Great advice. And in closing, who are three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and your work that you might share with us? Yeah, I think, you know, Keelan Rinpoche is not a very well-known teacher. He's so humble and so sweet. And he splits his time between Tibet and uh, the Pacific Northwest. And I think, you know, he's really, he's written a book called The Relaxed Mind, which is a beautiful meditation manual and teaches he leads a guided meditation that's completely free every Monday. Like there's ways for people to connect with him on Zoom in this case. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh has influenced my work beyond belief, even though I've never met him, but I've read everything he's ever done or most of what he's done. I imagine there's probably some things I haven't gotten access to um, and uh, studied his work, uh, his teachings, his talks and things like that. And he's influenced me to such an extreme degree. And then perhaps um, under that, more recently, uh, Dr. Larry Ward is someone who I've recently in the last six, nine months started studying more of his teachings. And he's a student of Thich Nhat Hanh. And he had a book that came out, um, Healing America's Racial Karma, which is, I think that's the title. Yeah, anyway, or maybe it's just America's Racial Karma. But it's, it's a very pithy and lovely uh, book and his work overall. I just find him to be very moving as a teacher. And one of the things that I find moving about him I realized this was supposed to be quick. I'm not being quick. Is that he um, exudes joy and he makes very particular parts of his life, very intentional practices around appreciating his circumstances and finding joy. And I think that's such a beautiful thing to be doing at this time. Absolutely. Well, thanks for the tips. And we'll put all of those in the show notes, at least the ones we can pronounce and find. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you're like, and he has a book. I'm like, okay, good. We can find that. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, man. It's been really great to finally get to know you a bit more and uh, share some ideas. I love conversations like this. I find them to be so beneficial to me and uh, of course, to the audience as well. So in closing, uh, where can we find you? Uh, your website, social media, all of that stuff for people that want to devour your books and join some of your uh, online communities and such, where can we find you? Yeah, great question. So I, and the nice thing about having a name like Lodra Rinsler is that you are easily found. So I am at lodrarinsler.com and on Instagram at Lodra Rinsler and Facebook and Twitter and so on. Uh, so it's, it's easy to find me. And I always tell people that like, you know, even lodrarinsler at gmail.com. It's like, this, there's not like a secret assistant that's answering all my emails for me. It's, it's me. You know, I'm, I'm, just a human being doing what I can to, to make these teachings accessible. And so when you reach out through the website or whatever, it's me that you're talking to. Wow. Well, I've heard you talk about that before, but it was some time ago. And I thought, I wonder, you know, as platforms growing as, as they tend to do, I said, I wonder if he still do, still does that. Because I, I probably get fewer emails than you and I do my best to acknowledge as many of them. But man, oof, that's a, that can be a lot. So I commend <laughs> you for your dedication uh, to subscribe. All right, my friend, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much and uh, best of luck with the new book. And I look forward to speaking to you again. Thank you so much, Luke. Thanks for having me here. It's my hope that by the end of this conversation, you're feeling a bit lighter and perhaps inspired to pick up a meditation practice or to commit more deeply to the one you have. 
in a drastic departure, I'd like to invite you to join me next week for number 348. It's called Rite of Passage, My Sacred Hunting Experience with Monsal Denton, wherein we explore the hunting trip that I just participated in here in Texas. And uh, that one is a wild ride. What a crazy experience it was. And you get to join the conversation next week. This episode, guys, would not be possible if it wasn't for the support of our sponsors. At the end of every episode, I like to give our sponsors a shout out. I want you to know that I'm going to drop a bunch of links and discount codes and information on you at the end of most episodes. And uh, if that gets overwhelming, just know that you can always go to lukestory.com forward slash store where you can find just about everything I talk about on this show when it comes to supporting your health and well-being. Our first sponsor is Cacao Bliss, the ultimate chocolate superfood. You can find that at earthechofoods.com slash lukestory. The discount code there is luke15. Then our friends over at Blue Blocks have an incredible eye mask. It's called the Remedy Sleep Mask. Get it, REM, like R-E-M. The Remedy Sleep Mask. And if you want to get your hands on one of those, use the code lifestylist at blueblocks.com, B-L-U-B-L-O-X. Last but certainly not least, let's get our guts in order. Get over to justthrivehealth.com slash Luke, where you can get a hold of some probiotics, antioxidants, and some other incredible supplements to not only support your gut, but also your immunity. I mean, people are really into immunity now, right? Uh, Well, at least we should be, not for the reasons you think, perhaps, but just in general. When you find yourself at justthrivehealth.com slash Luke, the code there is Luke15, and that gets you a cool 15% off. So thank you for joining me on this episode with our guest, Lodro Rinsler. It was a real treat to have a deep dive conversation about the nature of consciousness and, of course, uh, how our meditation practice can improve our lives. And meditation is something that has dramatically altered my way of operating in the world. And uh, I could go so far as to say that I wouldn't even have this podcast if I wasn't a meditator. There's just no way I could do life and do all this at the same time. So I'm a huge supporter. And I think now more than ever, with the insanity that we are experiencing on planet Earth, I don't know how anyone could not meditate every day, honestly. And no shame if you don't. And maybe you're doing just fine. Maybe I'm just neurotic and I need to meditate a lot. I don't know. It's possible. But I got to say, the days that I miss meditating every once in a while because there's some sort of freak scheduling accident or something um, are are, uh, much heavier days, much more dense energetically. To keep that lightness of being, it's critical for me to meditate. So I encourage you uh, to pursue some of Lodro's work or different forms of meditation that might appeal to you out there. I know an easy access point, I don't think we touched on this in the conversation But a good starting point are some of the meditation apps. Uh, I find many people that are new to the practice find guided meditations to be useful. So you might check that out. Now with that, my friends, I'm going to sign off and get prepared for episode 348 next week, which again is going to be uh, an interesting one, I think, for all of us, especially those of you that have been listening to the show for a while and followed me through uh, my past journey of being a vegetarian for many years and then sort of submitting to my body's needs for animal foods and feeling the hypocrisy around um, needing and wanting to eat animals but not wanting to go get them myself. Well, I faced that edge and next week's podcast is all about that. So make sure to tune in and I'll be back in your eardrums on Tuesday. 